Why is there comparatively so little science on creating animal products without animals? Why are pharma companies more interested in cellular agriculture startups than food companies? And how has the field developed in the last five years? In this episode, you will hear from Isha Datar, the executive director of New Harvest, about the fascinating development of the industry and the importance of public research. We talk about the dangers of monopolies, of private patents, but also of lobbying. Isha published an important research paper called Possibilities for an in vitro meat production system in 2010. Back then, very few people even knew about the opportunities to create animal products without animals. She co-founded Perfect Day, which is making milk proteins without cows. For example, they are already selling ice cream. And Clara Foods making eggs without chicken. New Harvest is an important non-profit research institute that funds and conducts open, public and collaborative research. You're listening to season one of Red to Green on Cellular Agriculture. This is episode 12 of 13 overall. Check out our earlier ones to get an introduction. In this episode, Isha is describing that the best way to get a foot in the industry is to add value. If you're interested to get involved in Red to Green as a co-creator, volunteer or ambassador, check out the link in the show notes or visit Red to Green one word no numbers dot solutions slash get involved red to green dot solutions slash get involved let's jump right in welcome to the red to green podcast on food innovations that are better for the planet and better for you and i'm your host marina schmidt first of all thank you isha for being on the podcast my pleasure thanks for having me marina Let's uh, look at what problems New Harvest is addressing. What is the red part, the harmful things, the issues in the industry that New Harvest is trying to tackle? That's a great question. So I think if I were doing this podcast five years ago, I would say the issues we are trying to tackle are all these problems of animal agriculture. But I think that that message is kind of out there. And so instead, I'll focus on the problem of why don't we have cultured products already today? And mm -hmm. the big reason why I don't think we have already an established cellular agriculture industry is because our current funding structures for discovery research do not accommodate cellular agriculture today. And mm -hmm. I'm speaking mostly about the United States here, but I think it's probably pretty applicable to a lot of areas of the world. We have you know, well-funded biomedical research where they are doing all the things that are relevant to cell ag, cell culture techniques, tissue culture techniques, scaffolds, etc. You know, all the tech is happening in the biomedical space, but it is called the biomedical space. And when you receive a grant, it is for medical applications for the most part. And so it's very hard to divert your grant money away from those medical applications into something like food. And then on the other side, you have food science, which is very much also funded, but it's all for the applications of food. But these labs are not always set up to do animal tissue culture work. The type of science that happens in a food science lab has traditionally not had a lot of crossover with what happens in a biomedical lab. And so we have this 
very clear funding gap that CellAg falls into where you need the expertise from the biomedical space, but the application in food and the funding structures have not taken ownership of CellAg. And you just have this space where there's so much opportunity, but so little support. And when I came into New Harvest and came into the field almost 10 years ago, I noticed that there are a lot of people who were ready to do the work, who wanted to do the work, who were experts already at cell culture work, but just did not have dedicated funding for the food application. And so I would say the specific problem that New Harvest is solving is that gap with the goal of temporarily filling that gap because I, you know, we don't want to do it forever. There should be other groups that are filling that gap, but filling that funding gap for now and creating a kind of foundation of academic research, citations, papers, and meanwhile, also supporting a lot of technical talent in the space so that we can start applying for much bigger government grants. We can start inspiring governments to support this work. We can start creating a pipeline of talents, talent towards entrepreneurship, PIs, etc. So essentially, we can fill that gap in more permanently than with our dollars today. So we, we try to be very catalytic with how we support research today so that um, that gap will eventually be filled in and we can continue working on other areas of the landscape that need to be filled in. I heard you speak about this preliminary research gap in terms of there needs to be research for further research to actually be approved. Is that right? Yeah, when you apply for a grant, you often have to apply with cited data. Like it, most grants today are a little bit incremental in that you're saying, I already have expertise in XYZ, and the next thing I want to pursue is ABC. And when you have researchers who have not done the XYZ of cultured meat yet, <laughs> it's very hard to say, you know, I've already done research in growing tissue for burn victims, and now I want to start growing chicken. That's a little bit too far, I think. So yeah. by by funding the XYZ research at New Harvest, we hope that we'll be able to get funding for the ABC research from external sources. It looks like a systemic issue, like this is a problem that applies all across the board to various mm -hmm. industries where innovation mm -hmm. is between two fields of knowledge. Yes. Actually, the area where most of the innovations reside nowadays. Do you see mm -hmm. that long term these structures will change or are changing? Or is this something that seems pretty much fixed in place and we need to find ways to deal with this? I'm very happy you brought that up because I think that in New Harvest's goal of advancing an interdisciplinary field, and I think we have quite a lot of learnings that could be applied to other interdisciplines emerging. And one of those things is related to how we run our fellowship program. A lot of the problems of research today is that it's very hard to have pre-published academics talking about their work with one another and not being afraid of their research getting scooped. And mm -hmm. so we need to create environments where researchers from different disciplines can come together, collaborate, help one another, and not be in that position of worry, and also create environments where two different disciplines can try to hash it out while they speak two different languages. We experience in our weekly meetings with all of our researchers that you know, we have someone coming from 
the bioinformatics world, speaking to someone who does a lot of hardcore cell culture work, those are mm-hmm. different skill sets. Those are, you know, different background, different experience. And to have them collaborating, working things out together is really an amazing thing to witness because it's kind of like having two people speaking two different languages communicate with one another. <laughs> so it's, it's really great. For somebody who is more in the startup scene, who is, for example, an entrepreneur and doesn't mm-hmm. have that much contact with the scientific community, how would you describe the relationship between CELAC companies and universities to date? That's a good question. To give a little bit more context in biotech, aka pharma, a lot of innovation is well known to start from academia. A lot of discovery stage R&D happens in academia because it's kind of common pre-competitive work that affects everybody and helps everybody out or is work and research that is too expensive for any company to do in-house or too exploratory. And eventually, once that research becomes promising, that's when the companies get involved and start kind of funding the later stages, I guess, the development of the R&D. And CELAG is uniquely different in that we don't really have that early stage publicly funded exploratory research supported right now, except by groups like New Harvest. And we have a lot of startups coming up, receiving quite a lot of funding. So Mm -hmm. compared to the established biotech space, we have a ton of private funding and very little public funding. And what I think that means is that it's likely that a lot of the work that's happening in, in startups probably could happen in the public space. There's probably a fair bit of overlap taking place there. There isn't this pipeline of academic talent that you would just definitely hire from right now. So I think the way that academia and startups interact in CELAG today is not with nearly as much interaction as would happen in other biotech fields. I like to see a lot more partnerships. I like to see the idea of companies kind of rallying behind Research. I think this is going to require a lot of reinvention in terms of how research progresses in academia, but there's kind of no time like the present for reinvention, I think. So the question is, (laughs) if we have all of these companies working separately on the basics, slowing down the whole industry quite a bit, but then also you have all these private companies filing Mm -hmm. patents Right. So Mm -hmm. that's probably also hindering the upstart of many more companies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel quite strongly that we have a responsibility to not bring all the baggage from kind of former industries into this new one, which is a lot. uh, That's a lot to say. If it were up to me exclusively, I would say that we should look at the field and design it in a way that maximizes competition. I think maximizing competition means actually quite a lot of open research. I think the real innovative IP is not going to occur in the next 10 years. It's going to come in the following 10 years. And I think if we can collectively advance a lot of the early stage steps together, we will move this field forward faster and we will be able to create cultured meat solutions in places all over the world. The way that Salag develops and manifests in terms of products in Asia will be fundamentally different than in the Americas, than in Europe, than in Africa. That I think can only really be enabled with some openness around how the IP develops. 
And I'm a little bit worried that patenting and the VC investment that we've seen so far kind of creates this winner takes all structure that imitates our current meat industry quite closely. And that would be a shame if we kind of took this huge transformative technology and just replicated a kind of problematic industry again. Problematic in terms of ownership, security, equitability, all you know, access all over the world. And we need to really restructure the industry if we are to do that. The problem is it's very hard to do a thing like that because <laughs> it would require quite a lot of sacrifice from some groups. I think we've actually done a pretty good job in terms of um, pushing forward openness across the industry in places where it wouldn't normally have been spoken about. But yeah, much, much more work needs to be done in that space. And it's, it's hard to know what that actually looks like. Mm. It reminds me a bit of when Elon Musk published and opened his patents on uh, mm -hmm. electric vehicles. I can't mm -hmm. judge how much there was a PR stunt versus an actual yes. you know, support for the industry. That's always hard to, to judge as an outsider from the industry. But obviously for the companies working in cellular agriculture, there is extra motivation to be in that space because they can create barriers for others to enter the market due to the patents. And that obviously mm. makes it a much more attractive space to be in also for investors. Therefore, mm -hmm. what I see could be a big problem is if we then have like a just a small amount of companies that really dominate the space and mm -hmm. they then get bought by the yes. conventional industry leaders. Mm -hmm then we are back at the, the original problem. But how much could you abuse cellular agriculture? Or can they mm -hmm. really create damage to the impact of the, the cellular agriculture? Mm. Lots to unpack here. I don't know if you've heard of Jevons paradox, but it's the idea that when something becomes more efficient, it doesn't actually become better for the world, we just use it more. And the, the mm. classic example for that is air conditioning and prices of electricity, where, you know, we used to run the air conditioner so little because it, electricity was expensive. And we would be very conservative with how much we used it. And now that electricity is not expensive, and AC has become more efficient, we just run it all the time. And kind of abuse it just with use. And I'm a little bit worried that that could be a potential future with cultured meat where, yes, we mm -hmm. are able to produce more protein with less land, but maybe we waste more or maybe we produce more meat or maybe we consume more meat than we ever have before and that affects us nutritionally. And when I, I think about the risks of cultured meat, I think we're also making assumptions that cultured meat will indeed have such a lower environmental impact and be so much better for the environment. I think that's that's the theory. And I think that's what we're moving towards and striving towards. But what does the transparency around that look like? How will that be enforced? How will we be able to make sure that culture meat is indeed this better product and not just a more efficient business for producing meat? But transparency, I think, is absolutely everything when it comes to this work 
And I guess in terms of food in general, we need to really be accounting for how food is produced, what the impact is on the planet. You know, it, it goes beyond just food safety into this kind of accountability. And I also think it might be an, an unfair assumption for us to say that current meat companies are the ones that would turn this technology into something that is kind of used inappropriately. This is no offense to the existing meat companies, but existing culture meat companies, but they may also do that. We can't just decide these people are bad guys and these people are good guys. Um, <laughs> I think I think inappropriately using the system could fall to anybody in a position of responsibility or power. And actually what we need to be thinking about are systems of accountability that prevent that from happening, no matter who is kind of at the helm. Yeah, it reminds me of an example that Paul Shapiro is using quite often where he talks about the 19th century and the mm. issues with having so many horses in the cities uh, where the Times was stating, if this keeps going, we mm -hmm. will be completely buried in horseshit yeah. <laughs> uh, within 50 years and then this was a huge problem and then though mm -hmm. actually henry ford was the person who fixed it and made it possible for more people to be transported but that mm -hmm. indeed actually created its own issues that we are battling exactly. right now and mm -hmm. that could very much be the case uh, but we can at least say that it solves for now quite a few big problems so we won't be covered in shit <laughs> our equivalent of shit uh, within the next uh, 50 years how have you seen the engagement of the conventional animal product producers with the cellular agriculture has their attitude changed if yes how and over what time horizon That's a good question. The first time I met folks in the conventional meat industry was over 10 years ago, just around the time I did my first TEDx Toronto talk. And the the sentiment behind that conversation was not that different from what I've seen with the meat companies today, where they're interested, but there's still an assessment of, is this an opportunity or is this a risk? And how much can we say that this is only a risk into the future? And I, I feel like there's a little bit of a sense of, oh, this is not this is not a thing now. And I think that the the ways that some of the companies have been in and around cultured meat recently, you know, small investments here and there, are kind of just a little bit of an escalation of that conversation 10 years ago, where it's like, we're keeping tabs on things. We want to know what's going on. But I don't really see this, this feeling of wanting to drive the field forward. By contrast i you know there's a, the company merck millipore sigma which is a pharma company for the most mm -hmm. part i feel like they are really trying to drive cell life forward become a real active player in the space this was kind of a prediction that i had made 10 years ago the the companies who can really disrupt the meat industry or the cultured meat industry are going to be pharma companies because they have the expertise to do that type of work they are very familiar with the r d timelines associated with it and they're very mm -hmm. familiar with the regulatory process and so in many ways they're kind of already set up to do this work and pharma has kind of just been a merger and acquisition game for a really long time. So it's it's a great time for pharma to, to move into food. And a lot of pharma companies already do do food in one way or another. 
So we're kind of seeing that come true. And the food companies, I think, are acting a little bit like companies that are going to get disrupted because mm-hmm. if they if they truly wanted to be involved, they would completely change their R&D. They would hire huge R&D teams. They would be building new types of facilities. Maybe they would be acquiring some pharma companies themselves. And I I just have not seen that happening. Um, Maybe it's happening behind closed doors, but I haven't seen it in ways that are very meaningful yet. I think there's a big opportunity there that they're still missing out on. And now is as good a time as ever to get involved. As far as I know, Cargill has an MD of alternative proteins and they have done some investments. Mm-hmm. So a few mm-hmm. corporates are slowly like dipping their foot in. Yeah. Well, actually one thing, one notable thing is I appeared on a panel with someone at Cargill a few years ago and that was the first time I heard him speak about cultured meat and alternative proteins as if they're absolute core part of their business and that they are a protein company, not a meat company. That was new messaging to me. Something is happening, but it needs to happen faster if they really want to get ahead of things, I think. To me, the problems that could occur if the food industry and the existing players turn against the innovations mm-hmm. is quite significant. And compared, mm-hmm. let's say, to what happened to Kodak, where they Mm -hmm. didn't adapt and then just pretty much got burned out (laughs) by the competition. Mm -hmm. This is a different game because looking at the amount of lobbyists in Brussels, Mm -hmm. there are 20 to 30,000 lobbyists and the majority of them is from the food industry. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the USDA and the FDA, a -hmm. lot of their leaders are former leaders from established big food players Mm -hmm. so are there conflicts of interest i think so are there you know loyalties to the former ties i think that's just safe to say that that's sort of normal and therefore i'm slightly worried slightly till medium worried that if um, the food industry actually wants to stop that they Mm -hmm. find ways through either the political field or through doing a lot of messaging around Mm -hmm. the dangers of cultured meat, around the Mm -hmm. problems, inventing crises or something, you can come up with so many good stories. How do you Mm -hmm. see that? Well, it's interesting. And the alternate related angle is perhaps cultured meat needs to have just as much lobbying because if we receive the same types of government support and subsidies as the existing food industry, then we would be truly competitive. Like there would be no question that we would be competitive with the existing Mm. products on the market. When it comes to lobbying, I think there's a few questions here. One is, do we go into this thinking that the current food lobbies are enemies or do we think of it as the current food lobbies are a tactic that the cultured meat industry needs to take on as well because we need to essentially be doing the same thing as the current meat industry in order to subsidize all this expensive R&D that we're going to be doing for decades. I think it's going to be increasingly hard for the existing food lobby to make uh, the case for their work in a climate-changed world and in a post-COVID world. And so the world needs this, I think, no matter what happens. So I think the messaging around why we need cultured meat is is pretty clear. It's just about getting organized. Yeah, I think having that lobby comes probably through the cooperation with 
mm-hmm. existing companies. That's probably the easiest way. How was the industry developing over, let's say, the last five years? I know you get that question quite often. <laughs> <laughs> the industry, so I, you say five years because it started five years ago. But I, I think, you know, you mentioned earlier that A.T. Kearney report about a thousand companies. I was just thinking, you know, five years ago, really, the first company was Memphis Meats or hmm. among the, you know, a few sprouted around the same time in 2015. And now I would say we're definitely around 50 plus companies. So that's 50x in five years. Doesn't seem like it would be too long before we start having thousands of companies. But what I've seen is a few different things. I think one is in terms of what how companies are messaging. Those first companies definitely came out saying, we are growing meat from cells. That was their pitch. We are doing the same meat, but now it's from cells. And we will do everything from the R&D all the way to the scale up, all the way to the consumer facing product. And then I think the next wave of companies were, we are producing food from cells, but we're not going to be consumer facing, we're going to be B2B. And then recently for the New Harvest Conference, before it was canceled, I spoke to 10 companies that were all founded in 2019. And there were a couple novel companies, some working on breast milk, which is a kind of a new phase. But the ones that were working in cultured meat were now all what one guy described to me as picks and shovel companies, where they're now focused just on media or just on fat or just on bioreactor and enabling technologies. And I think that that's an interesting maturation of the field is, you know, we've been sold on the big idea. Now the big idea seems to be considered fact. Like we we seem to all agree cultured meat is going to happen. And so now these new companies are doing the bits and pieces of this industry that we've all agreed is going to exist, which is very cool. And I've also seen in the past five years that the, the founders have gone from folks who were or more on the dreamer side. And that sounds like a slight, but I think, you know, you're selling the biggest idea possible and mm. you're, you're talking about the, this transformational change. And they did a really great job of, of getting that story out there and getting people on board with the story. I think a lot of the founders now are academics, postdocs, PhDs who have very specific technical expertise that works on those picks and shovels questions in the supply chain. And that's also really cool to see. So we're, We're seeing some evolution in the field, and I think it's all moving in the direction of the field becoming more established and more mature, which is awesome. Mm, fascinating. Yeah, one of the companies that you have been involved with at the very start was Clara Foods. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you could briefly describe what they are doing. Yes, Clara Foods is a company working on producing egg proteins without the need for laying hens. And in working on egg proteins produced through kind of industrial fermentation techniques, you can do all kinds of things that you couldn't do with egg proteins from hens. One of them being you can start producing the proteins at different ratios than the ratio that is found in an egg. So you kind of have this this suite of proteins to work with and Clara Foods is kind of looking at that suite and optimizing around what they're going to create and the products they're going to put it into. 
I don't have a ton of oversight because I'm pretty distant from the the companies these days, except as just friends with the founders. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm really excited about Clara's work, and I think that they were like Perfect Day were really important milestone companies in that they're kind of the first salag companies in that they wanted to produce a animal product, a commodity level, large scale animal product using without using animals and instead with using kind of cell culture techniques. I think it would be hard to envision Memphis Meats and the all the meat companies that came up in the following year existing without seeing the inspiration of Perfect Day and Clara Foods come mm-hmm. up, fundraise and kind of tell that story to the world. Nice. And as far as I understand, Clara is creating the egg proteins by using modified yeast, which like use the sugars to create the proteins. I Yes, I don't know the intimate details of what they're doing, but essentially they're using large scale fermentation techniques to produce egg proteins. Let's briefly talk about some more sci-fi applications of cell ag, things that may seem a little bit distant into the future, but actually definitely could be possible. I've heard you speak about, for example, fermentation, opening up a whole new culinary experience with milk, creating different kinds of cheeses and yogurts. How do you mm-hmm. see that happening in Salak? That's a very interesting question because Salag is a fundamentally different way to grow animal products, especially meat. We are no longer limited to the products that we know today as meat. We can suddenly do all these things that we've never imagined before. We can control the amount of fat. We can control the nutritional value. We could genetically modify the cells to do this and this and this. And so there's just this enormous set of culinary possibilities, nutritional possibilities, etc. And it's hard for me to even guess where we want to go with that. And I'd like... I'd like the idea of Salag being a tool to whatever kind of end as opposed to, you know, replicating meat. If we're creating a new meat, let's not bring along all the negative aspects of meat. We have a lot of listeners um, on the podcast that also reach out to me on LinkedIn and say that they're right now looking for a job in the field. Mm -hmm. So they have a background in biology or they are more on the business side and they want to get into the food tech industry, what would you mm-hmm. advise people who see their future in this field to do to get a foot in the door? That's a great question. The idea that there are folks who don't have a technical background who want to get involved, like that has not been a limiting factor over the past 10 years. And I, I think getting in touch with the New Harvest community is a really great first place to start. There's a lot of connections that can be made if you want to get involved in the field. And our former research director, Kate Kruger, she would be a great person to reach out to. One thing she said, the best way to get involved in the field is just start demonstrating value. Just add value in whatever way that you can. I think of our treasurer, John, who, when I met him, was an MBA student and today is a founder of a cultured meat company. And that happened in a span of about a year. He was like, I want to help New Harvest out however I can. These are my skills. What can I help with? And we found some places for him to put his skills to work right away. He's helping in a volunteer capacity. He was a donor as well. 
And through that experience, he met a lot of people, had someone to talk to about opportunities, got into working at a Culture Meet startup pretty quickly, and then found a co-founder and then went and founded a company. So it's really just about joining the community and, and getting connected to people. And so my yeah. advice would be to do the same, to, to add value and to talk to as many people as you can in Salag today. Awesome. Thanks, Isha, for being on Right to Green. Thank you so much, Marina, for having me. It was really fun. The next episode will wrap up the season. You will hear from a handful of industry thought leaders about the important developments in the field, opportunities, problems, future forecasts, and more. Then we will have a summer break and continue red to green with the topic of plastic alternatives. It's very dear to my heart and single-use food packaging makes up such a big chunk of plastic waste overall. If you want to get involved writing articles, contributing by doing industry research or spreading the word, go to redtogreen.solutions slash get involved. Until next time, let's move our food system from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green. <laughs>